No 9,000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. That was Hal from Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey. And this is William Ammerman, author of The Invisible Brand, Marketing in the Age of Automation, Big Data, and Machine Learning. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both discover new ideas so we can better succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Hrefs. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but it just doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out Hrefs, which is an all-in-one SEO tool set that helps you get your website to rank higher in Google, search results, and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. Now, a subscription to Hrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars per month, but Hrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. For details, go to hrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. I'll have more details in a bit. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome William Ammerman to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Invisible Brand, Marketing in the Age of Automation, Big Data, and Machine Learning, published by McGraw-Hill. William Ammerman is Executive Vice President of Digital Media at Engaged Media Incorporated and has previously held leadership positions with Tribune Media, Hearst Television, and Capital Broadcasting. Over his career, he has managed digital advertising for hundreds of television stations and their websites, mobile apps, and connected platforms. He's a Michigan grad, go Wolverines, and holds a master's degree from the University of North Carolina School of Media and Journalism at Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels, where he wrote his thesis on programmatic advertising. And most recently, he completed an executive program in artificial intelligence at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, go Tim the Beaver. An interesting fact, his favorite movie is Blade Runner. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. William, congratulations on the invisible brand and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So I want to start with one excerpt and then we're going to get into the book. 
I want us all to understand the technologies around us and how they are converging into something very new that I call psychotechnology. In my view, psychotechnology relies on the ability to customize information and personalize it for consumption by individuals based on their unique profiles. It also relies on the science of persuasion, where we are rapidly learning that there are repeatable patterns in the way people can be persuaded to change the way they think and what they do. Artificial intelligence allows us to harvest data in the massive quantities from a world of sensors and devices and to learn from that data. So, William, I was very, this is a beautifully written book. And I, you know, I really, um, I kind of feel sorry for you and I'd like to give you some unsolicited career advice. Don't write another book because this one is going to be difficult to top. It really is. It, it was an adventure. It, it, taught me about things that I probably should have known about. It made me laugh, and it also made me really kind of worry and get a little bit creeped out <laughs> about my privacy. So you provoked a lot of emotions as I, as I read through this. But what I wanted to ask, and, and not only that, there's, an, uh, there's whole sections in the book where, and I don't even know if we're going to have time to, to talk about it, but you talk about things like sex, religion, politics, uh, porn, ethics, privacy, finance. I mean, it was you really covered the waterfront, and I think that it did help to rewire my marketing brain to a certain amount, but it also made me much more sensitive as a customer and a uh, consumer of media. But what is of great interest to me is the title of the book. You talk about a... Scottish philosopher, and no, I'm not talking about fat bastard. I'm rich and I'm dead sexy. Adam Smith, the famous economist, and he wrote a book in 1776, and there was a concept in his book that I, I just see all the time. It talks about the invisible hand. Talk about the connection between what your book is covering and the concept of uh, his book. Adam Smith is commonly thought of as the founder of uh, classical or, or liberal economics. And when we think about economics in terms of uh, the invisible hand, we think of a series of forces that operate in the economy invisibly through the labor of individuals, each working to maximize his or her own value, uh, and that that by maximizing their own value, they contribute their maximum to the overall economy. And so everyone benefits by creation of wealth through the efforts of individuals working in their own best interests. That's a, a classic economics theory. And in thinking about what I wanted to name my book, I was thinking about revealing or pulling back the curtain on some hidden forces that are influencing people through their technology. And I wanted to make sure that um, both individuals as well as marketers understood how the technology works, but more importantly, could understand its opportunities and risks so that they could leverage it ethically and use it persuasively rather than coercively. And as I was thinking about what to name the book, someone said, you know, it's like, like the invisible hand. It's this force operating in the economy. And I thought, hmm, okay, that's interesting. 
what marketing term rhymes with hand? And I thought, you know, invisible advertising, invisible corporations. And then it just kind of hit me square between the eyes, invisible brand. And as I thought about that term brand, I had to make clear in the book that I was speaking more broadly than just corporate brands, but I was speaking in terms of brands like institutions and even religions that operate in our lives persuasively to sell themselves and to persuade us and to uh, change the way we think and what we do, how we vote and what we buy. So when I say brand in the book, I'm talking about that collection of influences, that collection of forces that are trying to change you through your technology. And I wanted to give people the opportunity to see that invisibly operating in their lives because this is already at work. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I've mentioned on uh, some other interviews, including uh, Jim Stern, who wrote Marketing AI, uh, he was on the podcast, and, and, and you've met him at uh, Paul Reitzer's uh, conference on artificial intelligence and marketing in, uh, in Cleveland. The joke is that years ago, well, for a number of years, Paul Mall of Dishwashing Liquid had this uh, TV commercial, and there was Madge the manicurist. And so one of the uh, women would come in and, and say, Madge, I have trouble with my, my fingers. They're all dry and everything. And they'd be getting ready for their manicure, and they would be soaking in a dish of liquid. And she would say, oh, well, you should be using uh, palm olive to wash your dishes. And uh, they'd say, oh, really? That, that softens while I do the dishes? And she'd say, yeah, you're soaking in it. And the big joke became, you're soaking in it. So people say, oh, AI, yeah, that's off in the distance. No, it's not. You're soaking in it. And boy, did I uh, understand that even better as I uh, read through the book. Now, at the end of chapter one, you forewarned the reader that chapters two through five were somewhat technical in nature. And so, you know, if you just wanted to skip over to the part more about the use of marketing, uh, you could go straight to chapter six. But when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, no, no, you read every chapter. And I'm glad I did, because you masterfully, this is why I think I, I'm such a fan of the book, because you are explaining something that is new and extremely technical and very often misunderstood. And I didn't feel like an idiot while I was reading it. You, were, you didn't assume that everyone was up to speed, and that's why I think this topic is a very difficult one to write about. But in the, the first few chapters, which I don't want to spend too much time on, but there are a number of definitions that I, I'd heard of almost all of them, but they reminded me of what they are or helped me better understand or uh, get rid of uh, misperceptions I had. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of these big definitions, just for folks that have suddenly been thrust into a marketing role, they found this podcast, and this is the first episode they're listening to. So could you explain um, what is artificial intelligence? And please avoid describing me when you're talking about that, because a lot of people think that I am artificially intelligent. Well, a popular joke is artificial intelligence is the art of making computers act like they do in the movies. Oh, and, that's uh, right. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, we watch a lot of, uh, you know, movies that have these artificially intelligent machines that can seamlessly blend into society and pass themselves off as, as humans. And in terms of, you know, some of the work that we're doing in natural language processing, I think we're well beyond the Turing test at this point, but we're not quite at the point where we can convincingly say we have general artificial intelligence. 
So mm-hmm. uh, what we're where we are today is what we talk about as narrow applications of artificial intelligence for specific tasks. And you know, when we think about artificial intelligence, it's not human intelligence. It is you know the capability of machines to do problems uh, to solve problems that are typically associated with the kinds of problems that humans solve but of course you know they're not organic masses of living matter they are uh, after all you know digital bits and bytes and solving problems that way requires a slightly different ap- approach than the way uh, a human mind does. So that's why we distinguish it by saying artificial intelligence. Um, And uh, I think that as a field, this is a field that is exploding. And uh, if you've got kids, I would recommend get them started now because there are going to be plenty of careers uh, in artificial intelligence in the near future. Oh, great. So talk a bit about uh, some of the other things that are in the subtitle of the book, like what explain big data, maybe IoT, explain what machine learning is. <laughs> so a lot of topics there. I'll take machine learning first. Uh, you know, when we look at data, traditionally statistics has offered us the ability to, you know, plot points on a scatter plot, for example, and to draw a linear trend line and try to predict where other dots that are in the future might fall on that line. What we can really do with uh, machine learning uh, is we can start to actually allow the computer to find patterns in data without uh, too much human supervision. So um, the machine can actually learn either through supervised learning or unsupervised learning or some combination of those. But the machine can actually detect patterns uh, and sometimes much better than a human being can. If you've got a data set with you know, millions or billions of data points, sometimes it's difficult for a human being to say, okay, there's 60 variables and there's you know, you know, billions of data points here. What are the patterns? And uh, a machine can do that fairly quickly. And not only can it predict, but it can start to prescribe or change future outcomes. And that's where things get really interesting. So when we think of predictive, just trying to figure out, you know, where a point will fall on a, you know, a scatter plot in some time in the future. That's, you know, that's old school statistics. When we try to change where that point will fall on the graph, uh, now we're talking about leveraging artificial intelligence to change outcomes, to actually learn how to persuade people, to learn how to uh, change messaging, to change pitch of, a, of an advertisement campaign, to actually alter uh, the future by manipulating the variables that achieve those outcomes. And uh, I think that's really uh, an apocal shift in the way uh, human life works on this planet. The idea that machines will be persuading and changing our future through machine learning and artificial intelligence is something very, very new. And we have to understand how it works and how it's already at work in our lives. So the term IoT, Internet of Things, talk about how that is transforming so much of uh, our world and how that is contributing to the big data which is then feeding uh, the developments in artificial intelligence. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of the Internet of Things is the fact that we are now connecting dairy cows 
to computer networks. And, right. uh, and you know, it's a, it's a fascinating example because it takes something so kind of organic and ordinary as a dairy cow and it turns it into a piece of technology. And by that, I mean, you know, if you could uh, implant a chip, uh, you know, clip it to a, a cow's ear or uh, on a collar, you have the ability to watch where that animal goes, you know, throughout its day, and you can monitor that from a remote point. You can start to gather data about milk production. If the if the cattle graze in this area, what effect does that have on uh, their milk production? If they graze in this area and the milk tastes sour, maybe we've discovered that this particular plant is contributing to uh, a sour taste in the milk, and maybe we need to eradicate that from the field or maybe fence off that part of the field. You know, we can monitor how often a, uh, an animal is eating, whether it's getting proper nourishment, whether it's getting water, whether it's getting, you know, rest and exercise at, at, at proper variables. When we think about that kind of data and we extrapolate, okay, well, if you can do that with a dairy cow, you can do it with anything. Right. Um, and so this collection of data from the world of things around us is enabled by the Internet of Things. So when we think of IoT, that's really what we're talking about is the collection of data from the entire universe of objects around us. Mm -hmm. And in the old days, uh, a shepherd would probably do some of that, but that just doesn't scale as well <laughs> for a really big dairy farm. So you write that the brands that succeed in the future uh, have already begun embracing marketing in the age of artificial intelligence. What are they doing? Well, I think one of the more obvious examples is Amazon. And when we think about what Amazon has achieved, they own both the top and the bottom of the funnel. And by that, I mean, in marketing terms, we think of a funnel being the a top end of the funnel is where we kind of broadcast out our message. We send it to everybody. We seed the idea that you need this new lawnmower or this new, uh, try this new restaurant. That's the top of funnel activity. The bottom of the funnel is where the actual purchasing is made. And what Amazon has done is they've figured out how to be both the advertiser and the cash register. So on one end, they're constantly telling you, you know, people who liked this also liked this. Wouldn't you like to try it because everybody else tried it? People who, you know, so they, they have become this recommendation engine of choice. On the other side of the equation, they actually are the cash register. So what they can do masterfully is they can solve what we think of as the attribution problem in marketing. Attribution is the, the strat, you know, the ability to attribute the purchase to the advertisement that triggered it. You know, the, the old, you know, adage is, you know, 50% of my advertising works. I just don't know which 50%. Yeah. It's that, that eternal struggle in uh, marketing and advertising of attribution. Yeah. And so if you're trying to solve that, you suddenly have data that allows, you know, Amazon to see what did we say that ultimately led to this purchase. Now, other people have to use a lot of third-party intermediaries to try to solve that. You know, if, if you're running uh, a radio ad and a television ad and uh, a newspaper ad and somebody comes in and buys something, it's hard to, you know, sort out 
which of these ads uh, persuaded you to come in and buy. But Amazon can actually watch the messaging. They can watch your journey, the customer decision journey through the Amazon uh, purchase cycle. And at the end, they can see what you're buying. And so they're very close to, you know, kind of solving end to end the attribution problem. And they are using artificial intelligence to manage all of those variables and to distill out the answers. What is it that caused somebody to buy? What message can we put in front of, you know, Bill Ammerman to get him to purchase uh, a new lawnmower or to purchase a new, uh, you know, Bluetooth headset? Um, so when we think about Amazon, they're a company that comes to mind as a as a company that's really out there taking advantage of data and solving real life marketing challenges with artificial intelligence. Yes, and Amazon brings to mind a company that is very focused on their customers and a line from your book that should be carved in stone, which is the power goes to those who know the customer best. So let's go back in time just a bit because I want to talk about how AI is playing a role in, in advertising. Right. Well, uh, you know, the role of the marketer has evolved over time and will continue to evolve. Uh, you know, if you think about 20 years ago, uh, it, we were just at the dawn of search engine optimization. <clears throat> you know, Google had, you know, just come out with this new you know, search tool and people were still scratching their heads and trying to figure out, how do I take advantage of this? Is this worth my time? And marketers, some of them looked at this and thought, oh, this is a distraction. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And others looked at it and said, wow, this is a huge opportunity. And they got in and they got in at the ground floor. And not only did they help themselves, but they helped, you know, their companies, their, their, uh, their clients make a lot of money. So when we think of search engine optimization, it didn't change or eliminate the role of the marketer. It just created a new tool set that the marketer had to learn and embrace. Uh, and some of them did, and some of them failed to at their own peril. I think today uh, we're on the cusp of something very similar. And, and I would point to Kind of the voice user interface is something that I think of as very similar to where we were 20 years ago with search. The voice user interface allows individuals to talk to their devices. We are now talking to our televisions. We are talking to our cars. We're talking to our phones. We're asking basic questions, directions to the nearest Thai restaurant, or how do I, you know, what's a great mystery movie or cyber noir thriller to watch. And I hope they recommend Blade Runner. <laughs> so we're using technology in a way that uh, allows us to interact using voice. Well, we're at the early stage. And what businesses need to understand, if you're a marketer, you have got to get your head around, how do I make certain that my products and services can be purchased using voice because voice is something that's super easy for uh you know the consumer to use it is very easy for us to spend money with our mouths uh faster than our fingers in fact so we can spend money faster with voice than with any other technology and uh, that's going to be a game changer for businesses to figure this out and uh, and to get involved so i would urge you if you are in the role of being a marketer um, understand that your job isn't going to be eliminated so much as you're going to have to learn new tools and embrace new technologies uh, to succeed. 
We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about Ahrefs and a really sweet offer they have. If getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website is a priority, but it just doesn't seem to be happening, you need to check out Ahrefs, which is an all-in-one SEO tool set that helps you get your website to rank higher in Google search results and get a lot more of the right kind of search traffic. We use it here at Artillery. A few of my favorite tools include the Site Audit. This crawls your entire website and gives a comprehensive report on any issues that may be hurting your SEO performance. And you're going to be surprised and maybe a little bit embarrassed at what the Site Audit will find. If you're a marketer responsible for your website, you'll want to run this report before your boss does. And if you're an agency responsible for your client's website, you better run this report before your clients do. Another one is Site Explorer. This is where you can research any website, but especially your competitors. One popular way to use this is to figure out your competitors' marketing strategies by studying the keywords they rank for in search results and finding out the pages that bring them the most traffic from search. You can research anything from how fast their search traffic is growing to which websites are linking to them to the pages on their website with the most backlinks. Another one is Keyword Explorer. This is great to have before you create even more content for your site. This tool helps you discover thousands of great keyword ideas and gauge how difficult it is to rank for them and then calculate their traffic potential. You can also confirm what your potential customers are searching for online to help make sure that you're including the right keywords and content on your site. Now, a monthly subscription to Ahrefs can run in the hundreds of dollars, but Ahrefs is offering a seven-day trial that gives you full access to every tool, feature, and report for only $7. So, Even if you don't end up subscribing, the reports that you can run are a phenomenal value. Seriously. Otherwise, if you've got money coming out the wazoo, hire an SEO firm, give them a king's ransom, but don't be upset when you find out they're using Ahrefs to run the same reports that you can run. Also, just a bit of medical advice. If you've got money coming out the wazoo, you should probably get that checked. Now, Are there other all-in-one SEO tools? Sure there are, and they're good. But in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, there's a link to an article about the nine most important features that Ahrefs has that no other SEO tool does. Check that out. To get the seven-day trial for just $7, visit ahrefs.com, spelled A-H-R-E-F-S.com. And now, back to the show. Let me just quote from the book. You say, not unlike how advertisers have had to learn the secrets to SEO and paid advertising to stand out on the web, they will now need to learn the nuances of voice search optimization so they don't get lost in the digital conversation. Now, earlier you mentioned the Turing test, and I want you to explain what the Turing test is and maybe what that has to do with uh, the comedian uh, John Mulaney. (laughs) So... Turing uh, is an absolutely fascinating uh, character from history, um, and if you haven't seen The Imitation Game, I highly recommend it. But uh, in The Imitation Game, it's, it's kind of a veiled reference to this idea he posited for how would you determine if a machine 
could actually think and what test would you apply? And uh, in its simplest form, you can just simply say, could a machine convince you over a teletype that it was human? Uh, in the original, it was, you know, can you guess between a, a male and a female and a machine uh, on the other end responding to questions, uh, but without kind of recreating his entire thought experiment, simply put, we have reached a point where a machine can interact with you over your device in a way that it's very difficult for you to determine, am I talking to a human or a machine? If you're you know, talking to somebody through chat, for example, and you know the person on the other end is replying uh, with text through a chat bot, um, it is, uh, or a chat dialogue, it is very difficult to know whether that's a bot or a human. And so the Turing test has been surpassed in my view. We are now beyond the Turing test and we are able to actually use computers in a way that, well, I'll just say spoofs kind of the, the human interaction and convinces the individual that they're interacting with uh, a human being. And what's really fascinating about that is that it opens up our empathy when we are interacting with something through language. And, and I can back that up with a recent study in which uh, participants were, you know, in uh, engaged in a conversation with a little robot, and through that conversation, they started to, you know, respond to that robot empathetically to the point where, at the end of the experiment, they were told, "Go ahead and now, you know, the experiment's over. Go ahead and turn the robot off." And the robot was told to protest. It was programmed to protest, and it would say, "Please don't turn me off. I'm scared of the dark." And That's a surprising right. number of people refused to turn the robot off. Mm-hmm. They're relating to it. So we are empathetically relating to our technology. And when I talk about beyond the Turing test, that's what I'm talking about. It's kind of this emotional relationship that we are starting to develop with machines. So then the John Mulaney bit, which I will include after the end of this episode, it's very funny. That's where he's talking about where the machines are trying to figure out if we're humans, like when we fill out a form. Yeah, he says. Uh, he says you spend a lot of your day proving to a robot that you aren't a robot. I'm not <laughs> sure that's the exact quote, but yes. that's pretty pretty darn close. And what I found so enjoyable about that was, you know, he talked about the CAPTCHA technology, uh, but he really kind of points out the absurdity of proving to robots that we aren't robots uh, when we need to get in and view our own stuff. <laughs> uh, but that's where we are, in fact, uh, and and we do spend some portion of our day proving to robots that we're not robots, you know, which led me to the thought, you know, gee, soon it'll be easier for a uh, robot to spot a human than a, for a human to spot a robot. And, uh, and I think we're, we're actually already there. Yes, yes. So I would like you to talk about Google Noia <laughs> and, and what are the risks for a business uh, along with that and uh, in, in, in anything else that, that it's seeking to utilize AI? What are the big risks that marketers need to be on the lookout for? Well, I, you know, I think that crossing the creepy line is uh, what marketers have to really be conscious of. And I, I like to say that, you know, the invisible brand kind of emerged when we started to figure out that people had this aversion to being spied upon by their technology, that they don't want to feel coerced or deceived 
and that in general, we are open to being persuaded, but we don't want to be coerced or, or deceived. So I, I would recommend to marketers, the formula is persuasion, but not coercion and deception. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way to achieve that is to ensure that the exchange of data between you and your consumer, your customer, is open and transparent. I often use the illustration of using the local uh, pet store where you're going to maybe board your pet when you go on vacation. And um, and so when you go to board your pet, you, you have to give up certain information like where are you going and how long are you going to be away and how do we reach you if you, you know, if there's an emergency and name um, of the dog and the name of the dog and diet issues. And so there's this open exchange of information that we are willing to enter into because we understand that it's for our own benefit. Um, So in that example, you know, you can clearly see I'm giving up data in order for you to have the ability to take care of my pet and we both benefit. Now, where it crosses the creepy line is if we then found out that, you know, you were taking advantage of the fact that I was out of town to go live in my house and eat my food out of my refrigerator. We would all agree that, you know, that's no good. I hate it when the people at the kennel do that. Yeah. So we want to make certain that the data that we are giving up, the privacy that we're giving up is in a fair exchange for something of value Mm -hmm. and making certain that the consumer perceives that value and understands that, you know, we are in a fair and transparent exchange is paramount to the marketer. And again, your formulation needs to be that consumers are willing to be persuaded. They just don't want to be deceived or coerced. Mm -hmm. So persuasion, but not deception and coercion. I think it's more difficult to deceive people than a lot of marketers realize. (laughs) I think that in many cases is true, but where we do start to run into problems with technology is that we now have the ability to you know, figure out where somebody is using their mobile device. We can listen to conversations in their house using their smart speakers. And I think consumers are increasingly aware of that. What they're maybe not aware of is all the potential abuses that that can lead to. And I'll, I'll if you want to talk about something that's scary, I'll, I'll take this out to the macro kind of state. Oh, please do, because by the end of the book, my blood was boiling and I was, I, I appreciate what you have in the latter half of that book. But you should also explain what Google Google Noia is that oh, I, I mentioned earlier. Sorry, sorry. Uh, so I, I don't know if that's a, a whether I coined that term or not, but uh, it's a combination of the word Google and paranoid and uh, paranoia. And I I came up with that. um, And I tell in the story, a very true story. I was uh, driving my family, typical American spring break to Florida. And on the way, I noticed that my Google maps kept routing me onto all of these toll roads. And a couple weeks after I got home, all of these tolls showed up where my license plate had been photographed and paired with data at the at the DMV and you know a nice little letter showed up with uh, $60 worth of charges from the uh, Florida toll roads and I thought you know I wonder and I don't know and if you do know please don't tell me cuz I still like to use this uh, illustration I wonder if Google 
was in cahoots with the toll roads to put me on roads that would charge me rather than just allowing me to drive straight down 95 and uh, on the on the interstate where I wouldn't pay any tolls. And you know that thought that somehow you are being manipulated for someone else's gain that you are being guided along roads, or you can imagine extrapolate to all other areas of your life where you use Google, that the recommendations you are being given on how to navigate the roads or what movies to watch are all actually being sold to the highest bidder. And that what you perceive to be kind of this neutral arbiter of truth is actually, in fact, just a, you know, a commercial for you know, changing your behavior. It's a, it's advertising in a way. And that kind of Google noia, that kind of paranoid view of our technology is something that I think is a common experience. I think that increasingly people have this sense that they're being watched, they're being spied on by their technology, that they're being listened to, that ads are stalking them, that ads are showing up because I was having a conversation yesterday and suddenly I'm getting ads for this thing today. And so, you know, we're all at some level or another experiencing Google Noia. I think it's a healthy skepticism, and you've really sharpened it uh, for this reader. And it was a common thread. In other words, you were talking about, you know, using AI and machine learning could be helping people with medical issues if you share information with them. But they might be pointing you to their drugs or their products, education. They might be pointing you, they might be teaching you, but they're pointing you to theirs. And, and then even when you talk about politics and the government, it made me better understand that I didn't know what I didn't know in terms of how I could be uh, influenced and persuaded, particularly as it relates to this concept of the echo chamber. Can you talk about what AI has in common with this what I think is a dangerous echo chamber? Sure. So I was uh, very influenced by the book, The Filter Bubble, a number of years ago, and it really made me think hard about how uh, technology puts us into an echo chamber of our own choosing. So if I read a certain type of article over and over again, I start to see more articles like that appear in my feeds information has become personalized. Your Facebook feed is different than my Facebook feed. Uh, if you go on to your favorite sports site, uh, it's going to push scores and highlights from games that interest you. And those scores and highlights might be different. You know, scores are, are the same, but the games that are featured are going to be different based on your likes and your preferences. So you're probably served more articles about the likelihood of Michigan beating Ohio State. <laughs> Absolutely. I know that's a sensitive issue for you. Yeah, so it's very touchy. So when we think about the fact that information is now being customized to our tastes, we have to recognize that we are in an echo chamber of our own creation. I like to say we read the lies that we like. And uh, we, yes. you know, we, we came from a world in which I came from a world in which everything was on you know, broadcast television. Everybody got the same message at the same time. Mm -hmm. you, know, you turn on the radio, everybody hears the same message at the same time. You read the newspaper, everybody reads the same version of the news. Today, we're reading different versions of the same events. We're reading different interpretations based on our own 
wants and interests. And we're increasingly finding it difficult to relate to our fellow citizens who are reading, you know, different, they're living in different echo chambers. They're reading the information differently. And to the point where we look at each other, like what is wrong with you? And no matter whether you're Republican, Democrat, independent, green party, I don't care. You currently have some other in your mind that this group of, you know, ignorant heathens, those people that don't, you don't relate to at any level, those crazy people are completely misinformed. Those crazy people are off their rocker. Those crazy people are uninformed, ignorant, horrible people who have been, you know, misinformed by media, by the information they're consuming, and they're just crazy. And I wish they didn't live in my country. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, regardless of your political party, everybody is experiencing that to some degree because we are constantly living in an echo chamber that reinforces our own preconceptions. We are increasingly avoiding information that challenges our views. We are increasingly fed information that triggers our pleasure centers, that, that reinforces our preconceptions, that confirms our biases. And in so doing, we are feeding into this giant, echo chamber machine that's generating news and information just in time for us to consume it. And I'm getting different information than you're getting. You're getting different information than the next person. And, you know, we're all able to build this, you know, kind of castle fortress of our own thoughts and ideas out of news and information that's been personalized and customized just for us. Yes, and I, I was very sensitized to that from your book. But also there was something about how political parties or governments or businesses or institutions can leverage people's uh, hatred. Yeah. So thankfully, right before I had to go to uh, the you know final draft and the book went to press, Tim Berners-Lee, who is the known as the father of the World Wide Web, said something in an interview. And it, it at the time, it didn't even get much press. But for me, it was kind of the most interesting, maybe the most important thing anybody had said you know, maybe all year. And that was, and I hope I can quote it accurately. He said, if you put a drop of love into Twitter, it seems to decay. But if you put in a drop of hatred, it seems to propagate more strongly. And it just kind of struck me that that is profoundly important for us to understand that he has spoken the truth so clearly that, you know, it just deserves some pondering and some recollect, you know, uh, reflection. And so as I started thinking about that, I realized that kind of this echo chamber of our own design puts us at odds with people who aren't living inside our own echo chamber. And it makes us more apt to be angry with them and to, to act, you know, negatively towards them. And I started thinking about hatred and it occurred to me that by design, human beings are slow to love and quick 
to act in anger. And I think that's a, you know, I'm hypothesizing here, but I think that's an evolutionary, you know, trend or, or uh, you know, fact in our lives that, you know, we learn to love, you know, maybe from our mother, uh, from our family, from our village, kind of this close knit community that we live with for years and even decades. And so we form love as a bond over long periods of time, but we are quick to act against a threat. Hey, there's a tiger in the village. Grab your spear. Let's go defend ourselves. And kind of this call to action, this quick response is probably evolutionarily necessary for us to defend ourselves. So hatred seems to be something that can be triggered very quickly, whereas love is something that we develop very slowly. And with the high speed of the internet and the speed of consumption of information, it tends to be that at least from my own observation, that Tim Berners-Lee is right, that this uh, that the technology age that we're living in, the social media and this consumption of information at such a high rate, that information that makes us angry seems to be more impactful than information that makes us happy or makes us love. Yes, and I think the having read your book, the artificial intelligence is an accelerant <laughs> for that. And it brought to mind this expression I've heard of the industrial outrage complex, <laughs> where right. you know the news media or, or whoever, or whoever's trying to send a message, if you can get people outraged, there's a certain addictive nature to it. And I guess if it's on television news, which I, I increasingly can't watch it anymore, but they want you to stay addicted and, and, and then watch the commercials, obviously. The same way when you are at a casino, they don't have any windows or clocks because they don't want you to sense that time is passing. They want you to stay right there and keep gambling. So I'm sure there are folks who are, I don't know if they're listening to this podcast, probably not, but they're thinking, okay, well, this AI stuff, you know, <clears throat> let's be honest, it's just another fad like the internet. You know, I'm sure it'll all, it'll all blow over. Can you talk about the risks of not using AI or 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 things where companies are going to be flat-footed by not being aware of, of what's going on? Sure. I'll give you two risks, one from the corporate world and one from kind of the, the world of global citizenship. You know, in terms of the corporate world, this is not a fad. This is here to stay, and I'm absolutely certain of that. If you are not employing machine learning to harvest insights from your data, your competitors are, and um, (laughs) you're going to lose out to them. Uh, So, you know, if we go back to our pet store, plug in the cash register and look at what's in there. Um, Inside the cash register are groups of people. Some of them buy pet food. Some of them come and board their pets. Some of them come to you for grooming. Do you know who they are and do you know which audience you're pushing your messaging to? If somebody comes in and they only board their pets with you, but they don't use your grooming services, there's an opportunity to say, hey, while your pet is here, while we're keeping Fido for you, let us give Fido a bath and clip his toenails. And when you come back to pick him up, you know, in a week, he'll be clean and ready to go. Well, that's a great message. If you've got somebody who's already doing that, you're wasting money. Uh, So that's a small, small example, but designed to help you if you're running a big enterprise to understand that harvesting data about your consumer and letting the machine help you identify groups of consumers and then target advertising to them is one of the most powerful things you can do. You're also missing out if you don't understand how 
artificial intelligence is enabling voice commerce. People are buying things to the tune of billions of dollars just talking to their devices. And if your products and services can't be found using voice, you're missing out. So those are some risks if you're if you're not using this at a corporate level. On the other side, I would say in thinking about state actors, I would say coercion is the biggest risk that AI poses. And I'll give you an example which actually terrifies me. The nation state of China is developed a, a social credit system where they're starting to score people based on you know social factors. Do you criticize the government? Do you speak out and criticize the Communist Party? If so, and in the book you said if you have a lot of books, you're going to get a lot of a lower score. I'd be in trouble. <laughs> so think about what it means when you are being scored by your government and the government has the power to penalize you, to restrict you uh, so that you can't get access to transportation, that you can't get access to good housing. Suddenly, the artificial intelligence that is harvesting data about you is being used in a coercive form, no longer persuasive, but coercive to actually force you to change your behaviors. Now, if those behaviors are behaviors where you're harming people, you're crazy murderer running around harming people, that's one thing that we probably all agree that, you know, we need to find ways to stop. But if the issue is that you're in disagreement with the, you know, the political party and you know that your score is going to go down, you're more likely to be quiet. And so criticizing the social credit system itself becomes a source of, you know, getting your points lowered and getting your, you know, getting these restrictions put on you. So when we look at the world we're living in, we are already currently living in a world where a coercive government system that leverages artificial intelligence is being deployed at a very rapid pace over a billion or more human beings on this planet. And you need to recognize the threat that that is to you know, human liberty, to freedom. And I think that should be a deep, deep concern to everyone. Absolutely chilling. And you talked about what was going on in China, but also just the capabilities that governments or other institutions have by collecting data. And it brought to mind this expression I've heard that when a product is free, you're the product. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like uh, Facebook and their data. They're just vacuuming up all this information about you. So let me ask you another concept that I think uh, would be helpful for the marketers out there. You explain what you mean when you, you write that brands will essentially need to shift from pull marketing strategies aimed at attracting customers to aggressive push tactics designed to appeal to the AI algorithms. <laughs> yeah, another way I, I like to say is, you know, the marketer needs to start figuring out how to seduce the algorithm. And, um, <laughs> Please and explain. I, yeah, so how do you seduce an algorithm? And this isn't the part in the book about sex, so just in no, case anyone's wondering. No. Although that, that's part of it, too. Yeah, so in the, the book, just so everyone who's now titillated, you talk quite a bit about how uh, the porn industry uh, has been at the forefront of a lot of this uh, AI work, and they were at the forefront of a lot of the development of the, of the internet. And to my astonishment, you mentioned in the book, not that I was paying particular attention, but you said that 25% of all searches are porn-related. 
I'm clearly not spending my time correctly. I, yeah. I was amazed and a little uh, worried when I, when I saw that. But, but I'm not it, judging. I'm not judging. Yeah, they're, they're, it's extraordinary um, you know, how much money is being spent and invested. Uh, I've heard statistics that the porn industry in the United States is larger than professional sports. So you know, if you try to start to do that math, it, it is pretty mind-boggling. And you did um, talk about sex robots. So I think everyone's pretty much going to buy the book now. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, talk about seducing the AI algorithms. Uh, again, I'm sorry for getting off topic. Yeah, we went right down that uh, that rabbit hole into the sewer. You're welcome. So, um, it's a small part of one chapter. Um, the, but I read uh, it several times. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> the... The idea of seducing an algorithm, let's, let's back up a second and think about what a recommendation engine is. And if, if you're, you know, uh, running a, a women's shoe store, wouldn't it be great if you could put out a recommendation engine that allowed people to go in and find the perfect shoe for them and that somehow you would be able to then sell them that perfect shoe. So by recommending, by becoming the authority in recommending things, you gain a lot of influence over people. And if people view you as kind of an unbiased source of recommendations, what's a, what kind of car should I buy? What kind of house should I buy? You know, what should I study in college? Suddenly you can see how that influences the way people spend a lot of money. And increasingly, we're going to be asking computers questions like that. Well, in seducing the algorithm, what I'm trying to say is that recommendation engine that delivers those recommendations is going to have a lot of power over whether people buy your products and services. And you need to start thinking about how that recommendation works. How does it determine what products and services to recommend. There is an algorithm behind those recommendations. And as a business owner, as a, as a marketer, you need to start thinking hard about how these algorithms work. What are the differences between the way Siri works? What's the differences between the way Alexa works or you know Google Assistant? There are differences to these voice economies that are emerging. There are differences to the way the recommendation engines on these platforms work. And you need to figure out how do I position my products and services to appear through those recommendations. So that's what I mean by seducing the algorithm. So you're no longer thinking about seducing the customer directly, but you're thinking about seducing the algorithms, which in turn seduce the customer. Mm. And uh, that's kind of a, a meta way of thinking about your marketing challenge. And it's something that, you know, marketers need to get more uh, attuned to. Yeah. Well, last question, the law of unintended consequences. What, why do marketers need to keep the law, what is uh, the law of unintended consequences? And why do marketers need to keep that in mind as they begin trusting, blindly trusting algorithms to you know, deliver their messages to at the right time to the right people. Well, I think that you know we can control machines to a certain degree, uh, but when we start blending algorithms with one another, we start to create uh, results that we don't completely understand. And I'll give you just a simple example of that, which is in use today, which is the generative adversarial network, GAN, G-A-N. The generative adversarial network is used to construct things like paintings that human beings would 
love to purchase. So imagine you have one algorithm that can create millions or even billions of combinations of images that are unique, that have never been seen before. And then you have another algorithm that judges which of those would human beings find appealing. And in the result, you can actually create a painting that Christie's and they actually did this, can auction off for you know, tens of thousands of dollars. So a human being will actually purchase a painting created entirely by an algorithm that works, you know, it's really two algorithms working adversarially, one generating and one judging. Now, when you think about the fact that there was no, you had, when you went into it, you had no ability to predict what the outcome would be. You didn't know what the painting that would be the you know what the resulting painting would look like take that very simple example and now take something as complex as bioengineering imagine if you turned over to a machine the ability to you know combine genes in the human genome to try to eradicate or eliminate disease what if you give a machine the power to start splicing dna together well guess what we're already doing that. And when we think about the power of unintended consequences or the, the law of unintended consequences, we have to understand that giving machines the power to do things that are unpredictable can have both really amazing positive results, but also some really scary potential results. Mm. And so all of us need to be aware that it's called a law for a reason that uh, when we start to meddle with these things, we do create results that are unintended. And I also want people to be aware of how that can go wrong. Right. And in the book, you talk about how a number of algorithms that have been developed, even the creators don't completely understand what they're going to do. Well, I'll give you another quick example. Imagine you have an algorithm that writes the news. There's a company called Narrative Science, it's a brilliant company, and you know companies like the New York Times use Narrative Science to actually generate paragraphs of text from data. So if you got a box score from a baseball game or if you got stock quotes, you can actually feed that in there and it'll generate a paragraph or two that you know can be done on the fly. That's terrific and really an interesting technology. But on the other hand, recognize that there are algorithms in the stock market that trigger the buying and selling of stocks based on monitoring patterns in the news. If you start to see, you know, the fact that uh, Procter and Gamble is mentioned over and over as uh, having invented some life-saving technology, or some other company has invented something that's going to create real problems, you can imagine that these algorithms can automatically trigger the buying and selling of stocks. That's happening today. So stocks are traded based on algorithms that are reading the news. Now, ask yourself this question. If the algorithm that's writing the news is owned by the same people as the algorithm that's trading based on the news, what is the potential that those algorithms can actually produce some rather untoward results or, or even manipulative results? And so I, I think that we have to be conscious that as we get things more and more wired up and that as we get algorithms interacting with algorithms and we remo remove humans from the middle of it, we're going to be creating results that have you know, some profound unpredictability and that could affect everything from 
medicine to finance to wide swaths of our marketing economy. Yes, and your book was a reminder to me not to be lulled into a false sense of security from all this AI and machine learning and and big data. So, William, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I very much want the reader to understand that this is already happening and that you are already being changed by this technology. If I could accomplish just that one goal, I would be satisfied. You know, my my real true intention is to start by helping people understand how this technology works and more importantly, to let them know that they're already being influenced by the invisible brand. Yes. And that tingling as I was reading the book, it meant it was working because it really helped to wake me up and make me more aware, uh, maybe in, in, in good and in cautious ways. So what, what's one thing a listener could do today to put in action an idea from your book? Well, if you're a business owner, um, I, would, I would start by trying to figure out whether your products and services can be bought using voice. That's a simple action item, but with some complex implications for your business. Uh, go right now to the closest Alexa and try to buy your product or service and see what the result is. And uh, you may be very disappointed to discover that you're not showing up. And by not showing up, you're not part of the future and you need to figure that out immediately. That's a simple, very specific action item, but the book is full of ideas for you know business owners and marketers to start thinking about what the implications are for the future. Great idea. William, what books have inspired your work and career? Well, I think I mentioned previously the filter bubble um, is certainly something that I was uh, influenced by. B.J. Fogg, the behavioralist, uh, wrote a book called Persuasive Technology, which I was influenced by years ago. And more recently, uh, Kathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Math Destruction, has definitely shaped my thinking. And my compliments to Kathy. I think she's done a nice job defining some of the, the challenges and risks and dangers of algorithms and the math that's running our world. So those are some examples, but uh, there's just a wealth of uh, information out there. The challenge in writing The Invisible Brand was I felt to some degree I was pioneering and I had to you know be creative and I had to create some new words like psychotechnology, which is a combination of psychological and technology to describe this invisible brand technology that's operating on you psychologically. And to be honest, I had to get up the courage to kind of take a stab at this. It's a very complex subject, and it is not at all fleshed out in the common literature. So, you know, I, I look forward to other authors who can build upon what I've done and, and maybe advance it. But I really did you know, try to take a stab at something very complex and tried to pull together lots of ideas from lots of different walks of life and disciplines in our economy to really make something that was uh, understandable out of it. Uh, it's a challenge. It's a re- it's a challenge for all of us to understand it. Well, I appreciate you writing it, and I'm grateful that you did, and I appreciate your leadership in this area. And I, I think that the invisible brand may, uh, as a term, take off to the point where people won't know that William Ammerman coined it. Right. So when that trivia question comes up, I'm going to nail it. Um, <laughs> well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? So, you know, in terms of the landscape, you know, we are really at a, a an apocalypse shift in, in kind of where we are. And I will say that 
a lot of the uh, work is being done at the academic level right now. And I think that institutions like MIT and Carnegie Mellon are starting to create curriculums around artificial intelligence. So rather than recommend a specific book that's coming out, I would say that I would love for people to start investing in education on this subject. And that means thinking about in your own lives, finding certificate programs like the one I did at MIT, looking at encouraging your children to start thinking about education programs that are designed to deliver a deeper understanding of artificial intelligence, machine learning technology. I think this is going to be highly impactful in the future. And there are going to be lots of jobs and opportunities for people who understand this. So invest yourself in the educational opportunities that are emerging in artificial intelligence. And speaking of that, in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, let's include a link to Paul Reitzer's Marketing AI Conference at which you spoke. Yeah, so he's done a terrific job. MyCon, M-A-I-C-O-N, was a terrific hit, and I'm looking forward to his future conferences. And if you want to learn more about that, I'll just give a pitch for for Paul. It's uh, www.maicon.ai. Yeah, we'll include a a link to it. And this was the first event he did, which uh, by all accounts was successful. And you spoke at it, and Jim Stern spoke at it who I've had the honor of interviewing about his terrific book about marketing and AI. So again, on those show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include a bunch of links, and it's going to be things like uh, marketingandai.com, which is uh, one of your sites, uh, whammerman.com, and your Twitter, and your LinkedIn, and all those things so that people can quickly find it. And uh, I hope they'll reach out to you and thank you for uh, being a, a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and, and maybe uh, connect with you. And for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite app, all these links can be found right now by going into this episode and clicking on the show notes link. Can I say, you know, if you want to buy the book, you simply say Alexa by The Invisible Brand by William Ammerman, and it'll show up on your doorstep tomorrow morning. I see what you're doing there, Ammerman. Now everyone's <laughs> Alexa is ordering it. Well played, good sir. Very well played. So the name of the book is The Invisible Brand, Marketing in the Age of Automation, Big Data, and Machine Learning. The author is William Ammerman. William, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. It's been fun. Thank you. And that closes the book on episode 246 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Hrefs. To start getting more of the right kind of traffic to your website, start your seven-day trial for just $7 by visiting hrefs.com. And that's spelled A-H-R-E-F-S dot com. And please join us next time as we welcome Alexandra Watkins to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her book, Hello, My Name is Awesome, How to Create Brand Names That Stick. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. Everything's fast now and it's totally unreasonable. The world is run by computers. 
The world is run by robots. And sometimes they ask us if we're a robot just because we're trying to log on and look at our own stuff <laughs> multiple times a day. May I see my stuff, please? <sighs> I smell a robot. <laughs> Prove. Prove. Prove you're not a robot. Look at these curvy letters. Much curvier than most letters, wouldn't you say? No robot could ever read these. You look mortal, if ye be. You look. And you type what you think you see. Is it an E? Or is it a three? That's up to ye. The passwords have passed. You've correctly guessed. But now it's time for the robot test. I've devised a question no robot could ever answer. Which of these pictures does not have a stop sign in it? What? You spend a lot of your day telling a robot that you're not a robot. Think about that for two minutes and tell me you don't want to walk into the ocean. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.